Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 18 tonight. We'll finish out that chapter this evening. And then be ready for the 19th chapter. Slowly making our way through this journey in the book of Acts. I want to do this first, I think. Um, could you guys go ahead and show the slide I have for tonight? Okay, let's, let's kind of get some context for our study. Um, this part of Acts, we're really discovering and talking about the journeys of the Apostle Paul and what we call uh, the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. Paul, um, as we read through the book of Acts, you could discern three times that Paul left from Antioch, which is really his home base of operation, along with Jerusalem. Um, and those would be in today's Palestine, you know, or modern day Israel. Antioch would be further north in what we would know as Syria today. Um, and so three times he left Antioch, traveled up into what's called Asia Minor. Um, so this is the region um, of what we call Turkey today. So if you look on a map, um, that's Turkey. So if you look here, this is a pointer. This, this whole water mass here, of course, is the Mediterranean. And I think most of you are familiar with this. Um, up in here, this body of water here is called the Aegean Sea. So lots of the Apostle Paul's uh, early ministry was in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and then around the areas of the Aegean Sea. Uh, and so, what happens here, we'll just find our spot here, if you guys can do this, I'm sorry, my hand, uh, this is harder to hold still, you realize. Let's kind of just use this as a home base, and what I'm going to do is sort of trace his first journey, so we kind of get caught up. So, Paul really started here in Antioch, and he sailed across here to Cyprus, and remember he did with, with Barnabas, and so he sailed from Antioch to Cyprus, and then on up here, this area, uh, that we, is the coastline of, of eastern, um, sorry, western Turkey. And he, there's, there's mountains up in here, and he traveled in this region up here of Pisidia, and this would be the area of what we call Galatia, um, and that's the region he, he did. So he kind of went like this, across here, then here, and then he traveled back this way. And on the second missionary journey, it was a little different, so he left here from Antioch again, and instead of going across the sea here, he goes around here, and he travels in the area of this um, middle Galatia, Phrygia, Galatia, terms that you hear a little bit interchangeably, Turkey, mid-Turkey. So he travels here. Well, he wanted to go down here towards Ephesus, but the Holy Spirit talked to him and said, no, you can't go that way, you can't go that way. So Paul said, well, I guess I'll go this way. And so that's what he did. And so he went up here to this area of Troas, and then he got the Macedonian call. We all know that. And so he traveled across the Aegean Sea at this point, over here to this port called Neapolis. And then, of course, 10 miles inland was the city of Philippi. And this is, of course, a significant work, one of the major works there in the second missionary journey. So he's over here in Philippi, and he travels down here to Berea. And forgive me, but this area, you don't see it here, Thessalonica is right here. And then on down to Athens, around it here. And then down here to Corinth. And he made it this far. And then from there, in the second jury, he came over here to Ephesus, and while in Ephesus, um, the team regrouped there, and so uh, Timothy and um, Silas, Luke, the physician who was now accompanying him, writing all this down for us in the Book of Acts, they all rejoin there in Ephesus, right here. Well, in that city, he also, well, before that, he met this couple, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, um, in over in Corinth, and. Um, I talked about the friendship that ensued. All of them were tent makers. And so they traveled to Ephesus. They regrouped there. The whole team now, uh, four to six people. And Paul says, I got to go home. And we talked about that last week, the cutting of his hair, the vow he took. But he left Priscilla and Aquila here in Ephesus. Okay? And then so Paul then sails back this time, about halfway, and then on into a port up here, and then back home to Antioch. The first verse we'll read tonight. Um, it's very quick. We don't know how long Paul was in Antioch after the second journey. Uh, he's the space there of one verse. Okay? Now that could have been a year. That could have been a couple. It could have been weeks. We don't really know. I'm sure people have opinions. But he starts out here uh, in Antioch again. And Paul now is moving towards this region again of Phrygia, Antioch, Galatia. And um, that's the next part of his third missionary journey. And then in time, he'd go back to Ephesus and spend a lot of time there, uh, meeting Priscilla and Aquila again. So that's a bit of a review, historically. And I should point out one other thing, so it'll be relevant tonight. 
If you look down here, there's another city that's going to come into play tonight, and it's Alexandria, right here. So on the southern end, uh, eastern side of the Mediterranean, and of course you know Alexandria uh, today exists in a country called Egypt, and it was Egypt back then too, and a new character presents himself from Alexandria tonight. So let's go ahead and stand together. That's a great pointer row, Jesse. That's new. I like that. I'll get a steadying device later. So, All right. Let's back up and read verse 23, because this is Paul leaving Antioch, beginning this uh, journey. It says this, And after he had spent some time there, uh, Antioch, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia, so Middle Turkey, in order to strengthen all the disciples. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. Well, this man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord. And I might you could put a conjunction or but, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, this would have been of Ephesus, whom when Aquila and Priscilla, this married couple, had heard, they took him unto them, and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he disposed, this means he decided, to pass into Achaia, okay, um, for perspective, Achaia is back towards Corinth, okay, so back across the Aegean Sea from Ephesus, he's going back to Corinth. He's going there for the first time. So when he decided to go to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. So they sent a letter commending him to the disciples there in Corinth, who when he was come, helped them much, which had believed through grace, meaning he did a lot of discipling. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly showing by the Scripture that Jesus was the Christ, uh, and the word for the Messiah. All right, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to look into your word together. Uh, Lord, there's something really special about learning your word and your truth. Lord, as a church family, I, I pray as we maybe dive into some of the history and, uh, Lord, just the, the characters of this text, that, Lord, the Bible would just begin to come together for us. It'd have more meaning. We'd begin to understand it more fully. And then, of course, we, we want to learn with the intent of applying truth to our heart. Uh, we know knowledge alone puffeth up, but we don't want that. We want to appropriate truth so we can grow. And I pray you'd help us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, tonight what I, what I think I want to do is probably give you a little bit of a very encapsulated history lesson, and then maybe a little bit of a bio, biographical sketch, and then uh, look for an application towards the end. The date stamp... Um, for the events of Acts 18 and 19 um, is probably around A.D. 54 with Christ, and this may not make no sense, chronologically dying sometime after A.D. 0 or 1. It's just whether they work it. But decades have passed uh, since Christ ascended. Um, many eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection are still alive. And um, it's been, really, decades, I guess you could say, a short time, or a long time, however you want to look at that, uh, since Christ has uh, ascended. In that decades of time, um, the Bible tells us that the disciples, and of course we could add to that the name of the Apostle Paul, and we would add Silas and others there with us, the Bible says that this small band of men had turned the world upside down. And by the world, they meant the known world, this world that really surrounds um, the Mediterranean Sea. It's amazing for really just these few individuals, you know, uh, because of Christ grew into hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands. And because of the many dispersions that were caused as a result of that, really the entire Mediterranean world uh, had begun to hear about Christ. It was really quite amazing. Um, at the time of this writing, as we just rehearsed, Paul had already made two missionary journeys into Asia Minor, Galatia, Turkey. And also, he had reached Macedonia, 
Um, you know, that's Philippi, Thessalonica, and that is modern-day Greece. And um, so, by Acts 18, 19, the gospel has gone, we know for sure, to Syria, Turkey, and Greece. And we'll soon discover it actually went a lot further than that. Numerous local churches had already been started on these missionary endeavors. Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, most likely Galatia, probably all the churches of Revelations chapter 2 and 3, Philadelphia, Sardis, Pergamum, Thyatira, and those. And if not by the Apostle Paul, then maybe by his companions, Epaphroditus and others, uh, Silas probably had a part in starting churches in this whole region of Phrygia and Galatia. We also believe the gospel had extended into Africa uh, by this time. After there's a history here, if we go back and remember, um, at the very beginning um, of the gospel being going forth, when the Lord ascended and the disciples gathered there in an inner room, um, you know, the Holy Spirit came down. Peter, uh, in great boldness, goes out and preaches. And um, you know, the Holy Spirit comes down. There's a, a initial awakening of people becoming Christians. And that small band, which probably a couple hundred that time, exploded into thousands, if you do the math. It quickly became tens of thousands. And we don't really know what the upper number may have been, but Jerusalem and the surrounding area was exploding with Christianity. Uh, a lot of Jews and Gentiles coming to Christ. Well, in Acts chapter 8, I, I believe it's that initial verse 1, uh, we learn there that a persecution arises, really headed up by a man named Saul, who would later become Paul um, in a discovery with Christ on Damascus Road. And so what happens is Paul's chasing down Christians. He's trying to discourage this way. He's a Pharisee at this time. He was trained that way by Gamaliel. He was trained by the very best. And so he was this zealot a Jewish man who was persecuting the church. And he really put a stamp on this um, early persecution by consenting to the stoning of a man named Stephen. And of course, Stephen is stoned. And then it's like everything breaks apart. And then there's a, a great persecution upon the early church. The Bible says that they were spread abroad, okay? That term is a little um, ambiguous, but it means this. And guys, just keep that other slide up, because I'll probably refer to that half a dozen times tonight. Uh, that just means that, that early dispersion, we know lots of people from down here in Jerusalem, when they were dispersed there in Acts 1, probably a lot of them went north up into Syria. Of course, that's how the church of Antioch was primarily started. But abroad also means could be across a sea. So if you just look here at you know, this uh, logistics, they made their way up here to Antioch very easily. Well, most likely many of them made their way down to Alexandria as well. Um, so Christianity really had gone not only north and west, but south into Africa as well. And that's important in a moment. Um, as Christians made their way to Alexandria, this Egyptian city, the gospel was carried, of course, all through this area of the Aegean and Mediterranean. But I want to talk about for a few moments this place called Alexandria. I think most, most of you have probably heard about Alexandria. It's, uh, it's a famous place uh, historically. It was a place um, at this time, um, I should say it's in Egypt, which you read about the Old Testament, Alexandria wasn't a, a principal city then. It became one later. But when you think about Egypt for a moment, Egypt is a nation that held great sway and power in the ancient world for centuries and centuries. Um, historically, um, it had a lot of influence on Israel and its kings. Um, Egypt at different times were both at war and had alliances with Jerusalem. Um, in time, if you look further over here, which we don't have this in our map, but regions way over here, the Persians, the Assyrians began to have a great influence and began to come down through Israel into Egypt. They had a lot of skirmishes and battles. And, um, and, and so that's that, that uh, played a big part in Egypt's history. But Alexandria began to kind of, uh, the, the region, I should say, not Alexandria, but the, the region began to uh, grow. 
in prominence there at the port. In time, um, we know this, that the Macedonians up here, I'm sorry, you can't see that. The Macedonians here, I think about Spartans, you know, Greeks, uh, <laughs> so much is in my head right now. Um, the, the Macedonians, the Greeks, Spartans, these people, that they made a trip across here, the sea, and they really repelled the Assyrian Persian armies at that time. And when they did that, the Egyptians kind of welcomed them. Like, thank you. These uh, Persians were, those people were bad. Uh, they were oppressors. And so, uh, when the Greeks came, they were really grateful, which really kind of began a long-term alliance with Greece and Egypt for a while. Um, as a matter of fact, so profound was Greeks' influence here that the general who headed up that uh, war, his name was, anybody want to guess? Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great, imagine, founded the city called Alexandria. And so, um, that's where the city came from. So, Egypt always had a prominent place, but it was Alexander the Great, and this is about 300 B.C., give or take uh, a couple decades, probably 330 B.C., um, Alexander the Great founded this city. And so, there was an alliance there, and Egypt began to rise to power um, again. Um, in time, um, you know the story probably, in trying to cement this alliance, uh, Caesar um, married a lady named, you guys remember all this stuff? Cleopatra. And they had a son, and well, I say he married her, that's not true. Um, they weren't allowed to marry foreigners, so it was an understanding <laughs> that produced a son. And uh, as you can imagine, you had these two great powers now united. Um, and, and that, and so a son was born here, and he sort of failed in his mission. But anyway, so there's a lot of history there. Well, in time, of course, the Greeks receded, the Romans became uh, more prominent, and that's where I'm, I actually skipped all that. The Caesar was Roman, not Greek, um, but you remember that. And so this became a very prominent place for the Romans. So the Romans really now rule all this area, but Alexandria is a, is a very prominent place. What's important about that, the reason I tell you that history, is because there's a time when the Persians ruled over an area called Alexandria. The Persians were great in math and sciences, and they deposited a lot of their culture in Alexandria. Um, of course, then the Greeks came in with Alexander the Great, and they deposited much of their literature there in Alexandria, and then the Romans took over. And that became a very important place there because Roman Caesar married Cleopatra. And so that became a very concentrated center. So in time, Alexandria was really known as the intellectual capital of the world. And most famous for the library of Alexandria. Well, there's all kinds of tales of the things that were you know, there in the library of Alexandria, much of it. Uh, hence looted, but um, for our purposes, more ancient biblical manuscripts, and by that I mean copies of originals, were made in Alexandria than any place else in the world. Um, copies of what we call the New Testament or versions of those copies were found in great number in Alexandria, and you know, so there's a lot of scholarship that was happening there. Um, pages of notes that I don't know where I'm at. So I say all of that, because this will be more meaningful now, and maybe not. Um, from Alexandria came smart people. Does that make sense? This is a place where more scholars in the world gathered than any place else in the world. There was more literary scholars, more, more mathematicians, more philosophers, more astronomers. Like this would be, think of the four or five best colleges in the world today. It was all that and more in Alexandria. And I say that so when we are introduced to a new character that the Bible says are really smart, I want you to understand Apollos 
was very, very smart. And that's what we read in the text. So if you look with me in verse 24, I want you to notice this. And a certain Jew named Apollos was born at Alexandria. And now all these words I'll describe in a moment, eloquent and mighty the scriptures, uh, begins to make sense to us because this man was raised in the most intellectual city in the world. He was raised most likely as a scholar, both intellectually and in the Jewish tradition. By this time, um, 50 AD, 54 AD, um, there were probably approximately one million Jews in Alexandria. And these Jews had a pronounced impact on the culture, but the Greek culture that was still there post-Rome had a profound effect on the Jews. And matter of fact, it's what we call Hellenistic Jews. It's a term you've probably heard before. And Hellenistic Jew was a, a Jew by birth, most likely, and heritage, but they had also experienced a lot of Greek philosophy and culture. I know it's Roman times, but Greek culture really was still there. Uh, made a big impression upon these Jews. And so they're called Hellenistic or Greek-influenced Jews. So this man was trained in the ways of the Greeks, the ways of the Romans. Um, he had the knowledge of probably of, of the Persians that were there. And but most of all, he was a scholar in the Hebrew uh, scriptures. This man um, was an intellectual giant. He was born and raised in Alexandria, was educated there. In verse 24, the Bible says he was mighty in Scripture. Um, like the Bereans, this is a man who, who knew um, the Old Testament. Uh, and, he, and he probably, it's indicated, he knew it better than anyone we've really seen in Scriptures to date. When Christians began to arrive in Alexandria, um, again, probably that persecution all the way back in Jerusalem. Um, and if not... Um, you know, certainly before 50 A.D., Christianity had made its way there. Um, somehow, this information of Christ came to Alexandria, and uh, Apollos had some exposure to it. Now, there's another way he could have been um, exposed to this information. Uh, later, we get a clue that what John knew about was the baptism of John. What Apollos knew about was the baptism of John. It's possible that after John the Baptist was beheaded, that John's disciples fled to the four corners of the world, some perhaps landing in Alexandria, and maybe Apollos heard some about Christ from those people, but most likely maybe a combination. Uh, Apollos in Alexandria probably heard from Christians that fled Jerusalem, and possibly from the disciples of John the Baptist himself. But somehow he gains a partial understanding of Christ as the Messiah. Okay? Was he saved? I don't know. Would he become saved? Yes, he would. But I don't know his spiritual condition. But he had come to some realization that Christ was the Messiah, and he became passionate about teaching that from the Scriptures. Now, I have my own educated guesses how this all transpired. But I'm thinking that Apollos, having learned uh, a little bit of Christ um, from Christians, and maybe the disciple of John, uh, doesn't say this, but we are told that from Alexandria, if you look there, um, he sailed to Ephesus. Okay, why would he sail to Ephesus? Well, I don't know, and the Bible doesn't say, but it's very possible since Paul had spent uh, 18 months, almost two years in Corinth, and some of the plans Paul's maybe had leaked out. It's very well he could have gone in search of Paul for greater understanding. Now, that's Troy Durrell's hypothesis. Doesn't really matter. All we know is this man had a little bit of knowledge and he was pa passionate about it. But he goes to Ephesus, and for whatever reason, when he gets there, um, he just starts preaching in the synagogue. Um, the qualities of Apollos, and this is the biographical sketch, are, are really unique and amazing. Um, maybe, besides Paul, they, they maybe could have been equal, but Apollos was an incredi incredibly educated man. Now, the disciples as a whole were uneducated men. Paul, 
later called to be an apostle, was an incredibly educated man. Uh, educated by the very finest in, in Jerusalem. Gamaliel was a teacher, the most famous Pharisee of all. Uh, but Apollos may have been his intellectual equal. The Bible says in verse 24, he was mighty in the Scriptures. And, and, and that, that phrase in the Greek means he, he had power, he understood them. He could, he could rightly divide them, we'll see in a moment. Like this man knew uh, chapter and verse for everything. And if you had a question, he had an answer. If you had an argument, he, he could answer it, refute it, whatever else. But he was mighty in the Scriptures. He was an intellect. I'll just say this. He was smarter than the average guy. And the Bible says he was eloquent. And this Greek word is fascinating um, as I studied it. Um, the word eloquent um, comes from the word logos. Okay? Now, if I say logos, most of you know what that word is. That's a reference to the Word of God. It's the Logos. And, but specifically, uh, we're told that Jesus was the, the Logos, the Word. But if you know about what that word means, it doesn't just mean it's like a word, but it means it's a word with power. Right? So the idea here is the Logos is powerful. When, uh, the, when the Logos is spoken, um, it's not just the truth, but it's truth that is infused with power. Um, when Logos is spoken, things are created, right? That's powerful. Well, the word used here to describe Apollos is a derivative of that word, and it's logios. So it's saying that Apollos was logios. The implication is this. Here was a man who had great intellect and, uh, and knowledge. He was super smart, but he used it in a very powerful and persuasive way. Okay, there are people who can get up and, and, and just talk facts. And we all go, interesting, and we look at our watch, right? Oh, that's not happening. Um, and there's guys who can get up here with the truth, and man, people are leaning in, and they're listening, and that's powerful. So this man spoke like that. Like, he was smart, he was intellectual, um, he, he was like the, he was an unbeatable debater. Um, he persuaded the Jews uh, in, in debates. One, that's all he did was win. So it's wisdom and knowledge and intellect uh, that has divine reason behind it. Like this man had great knowledge. He was the gift of, of, of intellect and oratory ability to combine. Now, that's a unique man. And add to all this, he was persuasive. He had zeal, he had passion. So he, he's like, a, he's like um, an Einstein and a Coach Saban and, uh, you know, some passionate guy all mixed in one, like the total package, you know. Uh, what, what you love to have as your pastor, you some have church, but this is what you get. And this guy was, was all of that. He was unique. Um, in verse 25, again, he was fervent in spirit. The word literally means to burn. He was full of zeal. So, an incredible communicator. And um, in verse 25, he's described even more that he was diligent. And the word diligent there means accurate. He was spot on. You had a question, he had a spot on answer. You had a dilemma, I got a spot on response. Um, you want to debate me? The idea is he's going to win. And he did. And this is the man, Apollos. Um, all this energy. Well, so this guy lands in Ephesus and immediately starts lecturing in the synagogue. And he wows everyone. And in verse you know, 28, it says, he, he mightily convinced the Jews. Now, as we know, in all Paul's journeys, the Jews were not usually mightily convinced. Um, instead, they hated Paul and chased him. But here we learn that Apollos is like winning them. Like they're paying attention to this man. He was convincing. And we know he was convincing. Just another aside. Because after he goes to Ephesus, he travels across to Achaia, which is, is in Corinth, where he really spent his time discipling the Christians that Paul had won. And if you remember the story there, Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians later. And what had happened in their absence, these Corinthians were divided, and some said... Well, I am of Paul, and I am of Peter, and I am the third guy? Apollos. 
He was persuasive enough to trump Paul and Peter, the eyewitness of Christ. And so you just, I'm trying to get you a hint of the abilities of this man. Um, it was immense. <laughs> but his knowledge, while flawless with what he knew, was incomplete. So what did he know? Well, he knew the scriptures that he had. He understood the need for repentance. You know, we'll learn in the next study, the, the baptism of John. He knew that we should be baptized into repentance. Um, but his knowledge of what we call today the New Testament was incomplete. Whether he had enough information to be saved or not, I don't know. Um, and I don't care. Because obviously he became saved if he wasn't. Um, but in going to Ephesus, he just missed Paul. Because Paul had just set sail for Antioch. So he, whether he intended to meet Paul or not, I don't know. But either way, he didn't at this time. He would later, but he doesn't meet him. Um, Paul was now probably north of him and uh, east in the re region of Galatia. Uh, he probably already left Antioch by the time Paul gets into Ephesus. Um, and then when we're introduced in the text, something happened. So he gets to Ephesus. This man just rushes on the scene to the synagogue. He starts preaching. Everyone goes, wow, incredible. He's convincing, man, maybe Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe not understanding Savior from his teaching, but Messiah. He's convincing. And Paul's not there, but there are two people sitting there on the back row, you know, if there were Baptists on the back row, and they're listening. And these are the people Paul left in Ephesus to start the church in his absence, a really godly couple named Priscilla and Aquila. And they had spent almost two years with Paul, and they were endeared to him and became, as we'll learn later, lifetime friends. So they listen to Apollos speak, and then when he's finished, they go get him, and they they brought him in to them. And I'll talk about that term in a moment. And in great discretion, and also speaking to the spirit of Apollos, his intellect, because he was all that, and evidently he was teachable and humble, they began to explain the way of Christ more fully. Okay? And let's just look at the text and, and see that. Um, verse 26, and, and he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them. It's, it's a really kind of a term of endearment. And expounded, and the word means explained in him the way of God more perfectly, or how Jesus was not only the Messiah, but he was the Savior. So no doubt they talked about the atonement and what his life, death, and burial meant, his resurrection, and that he was Savior of the world. And so um, after that happened, <laughs> the very next verse is, he decided to go to Antioch. What happened between verses 26 and 27? Maybe he got saved? I don't know. Maybe he was already saved. Maybe he got rebaptized. I don't know. It doesn't say he got rebaptized. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. I, I don't know. I don't know what happened there. I don't know how long this expounding of um, New Testament truth of grace took, but it evidently took hold in his heart. And my guess is this. Uh, this couple is looking at this man who is an intellectual wonder, who's persuasive, and now he's got the whole package. And they're saying, hey, we're here in Ephesus trying to start this church. We had just been in uh, Achaia, in, in Corinth, and man, we want a lot of people to the Lord, uh, but we had to leave to continue the gospel. There's a lot of people there who need to be trained up and discipled there. You know, my, my, my thoughts is, they said, why don't you go back over here to Corinth? You can be a great help here and follow up. Well, that's what the Bible says happened in the last verse here. He goes there and strengthens the disciples. So his mission was not so much evangelistic at this point, which I knew he did that, but was about discipleship. And he goes back and spends enough time there to become one of the chief influences in the church of Corinth. And um, he learns about the Holy Ghost and all this, and he, he heads that way. Um, I really should use my nose for Wednesday nights. Okay, that's, that's enough on Apollos. Cool guy, right? Okay, we're going to come back to him later. So having spent all this time in this, you know, 
biographical sketch of Apollos and who he would become, because I think it's important to understand the rest of the New Testament as you read 1 Corinthians and other places. I, I want to spend the, a few minutes talking about the sort of the a little more hidden people in the text, and that is Priscilla and Aquila. And it's from there I want to take application. In covering historic texts like these, and of course I talk about historically, I enjoy that. It's easy for us in our Bible reading, we could do this, and you know, I could be tempted to do this. I read verses 24 through 28, and okay, here's Apollos, and this happened. Okay, where's the, where's the application in verse nine, chapter 19? It's easy to move past it very quickly. But there's something here that I know the Lord has, has for us. Um, so if we look at context and dynamics, and tonight I have an application that's not directly pulled from the Scripture, but I think is an implied, um, that is directly stated in other text. I, I want us to consider a dynamic that I see in uh, these few verses. Okay, now I just want you to kind of listen to my argument. Priscilla and Aquila met Paul in Corinth. They were refugees from Claudius, the Roman emperor, who had all the Jews leave, really, Rome, but probably Italy, and that's why they had come over to Corinth. They met the apostle Paul there, and they had two things in common. Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers, so was Paul, and they were also Christians. Don't know how they were saved. I don't know if they were saved in Rome or not, but they became Christians either there or on their way, and they loved the Lord. So a friendship and partnership in the gospel ensued. They labored together in common purpose for 18 months, and then we know for decades longer. Upon Paul's departure, they agreed to stay on in Ephesus and to uh, nearly begin the fledgling church there in Ephesus. There's a bond, a strong bond between Paul and Priscilla and Aquila. Okay, now think about that. One day, this upstart from Alexandria shows up. And everybody knows that anyone from Alexandria is stuffy. They're all the smart people. Okay, that's my bent. And this upstart has obvious intellectual gifts that are greater than their own. Everything the guy says is true. But thankfully, for my pride, he doesn't know everything. He's got a little bit to learn. In a way, you just got to think about this. Priscilla and Aquila could have looked at this guy and thought, who's this dude? And he's stepping on our turf talking about Jesus. And he doesn't even really know Jesus like we know Jesus. And they very well could have saw him stepping on Paul's toes because Paul's place was the synagogue. And that's where he argued from. And so they see this upstart who they don't know where this guy has come from, except he came across the sea, and he's preaching in this way. And it's very easy for them to have looked at him with skepticism, or maybe even jealousy or resentment. Um, you know, how would we have responded? Maybe a little off-putted, um, reserved. You know, again, who is this guy? Their loyalty to Paul would have been great, it had been easy for them to view Apollos as a rival and maybe not appreciate all the zeal that he had. All these, at least from where I sit, in my view, are very common human tendencies. And it's more than that. It's been my experience. I remember when I became pastor of Eastland Baptist Church, I followed a man who had been here 30 years. He was loved, he was liked, and he was very well known. I was a newcomer, relatively speaking. There were people who had been here for decades. I had been here for a couple years. And all of a sudden, I'm pastor of Eastland Baptist Church. <laughs> I did not receive a universally warm welcome. And for no other reason um, than that I was new. You follow me? Okay. Some of you older people maybe can remember that. 
And maybe you never knew, but I'm telling you that happened. So it was just that I was new. It was easy to be skeptical of me. And I, and I totally would understand that. This man's here 30 years. He's proven himself. He wouldn't be able to Christ. And, and, and then I come in and, and I'm standing in the same place that he's standing. It was just probably really easy to think, I don't like that guy as well. That's human nature. And if you say, I've never been that, you're not telling the truth. I've seen people walk into church here and they're big. Great, you know, big personality, very talented. And I've seen people go like, who's that guy? You know, I like to say we all rush to meet those people. It's not the way it always works. So well, we're not like that. Well, you know, good for you. Um, but this very easily could have been a dynamic in play here. But it wasn't the dynamic. And here comes the application. What were they instead? They were incredibly gracious. The Bible says in verse 26, they took him unto them. They took him unto them. It's a Greek phrase. It means to take aside. Now, please listen. To receive with personal interest. Okay. James comes to church. Um, I take him aside. What's that mean? I'm, I'm, looking at, I'm looking to become his friend. Right off the bat, I'm receiving him with interest. It means to accept, to receive as a companion. And I like this one the most. This is straight from Strong's uh, Concordance and Lexicon. To take him unto them means to grant one access to one's own heart. Priscilla and Aquila said, hey, Apollos, you are all that in a bag of chips, and I'd like to be your friend. And I'd like to be your companion for your good. I have an interest in you, not for gain, but for yours. That text, that phrase really um, ministered to me. See, this attitude defined the heart and spirit of this New Testament couple. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19, this couple bought a house, and the first thing they did with it is they invited the new church to meet there. This is where the church at Ephesus met, was in the home and received by the heart of Priscilla and Aquila. Look here, they just didn't treat Apollos that way. They treated every new convert in Ephesus that way. I have a personal interest in you. I want to become your companion and friend. And look here, I want to invite you into my heart and by extension into my home. That's a pretty dynamic uh, development in this section of Scripture to me. This is a couple started the church at Ephesus. They were probably primarily responsible for hosting the needs of that ever-growing assembly that met in their home. They allowed people into their heart like Apollos, and they allowed people into their home in mass. I want you to consider, okay, church-wide application. What if we as a church family made it our personal ministry to receive new people into our church like this? Okay? Look at every one of us. What if all of us want for a moment to find the best qualities in this whole text? Okay, Apollos, man, he's great. Okay. Forgive me. I don't know if there's a Paulus in this room. Seriously. Right? I'm not going to stand up and say I'm a scholar. But every single one of us can be like Priscilla and Aquila. Every one of us. Man, Paulus, that's not me. Priscilla and Aquila, if I want to, I can, I can do that. What if every one of us, when new people walked in these doors, we took a personal interest in that person, became willing to receive them as a, a companion, 
a friend, and we're willing to expose our heart or to be open to them in that kind of vulnerable way. No guardedness, no intimidation by whoever they are, poor or rich, no reservation, just open hearts towards them. What if we made it our responsibility to incorporate people into the fabric of our church? What if that was our ministry? What if we view new people as a new opportunity to minister? Please listen. No program will ever replace an individual's heartfelt effort to make a new person feel welcome and safe. You got to get this. No program that I can come up with. Okay? Um, No program I come up with can be at that door, that door, that door, that door, that door, and that door. Just can't be done. People can, 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 you know, get through the system. Happens all the time. Any program is not going to be, you know, completely foolproof. But if every member of the Baptist Church took that ministry on to make sure a new person felt incorporated and would assemble them and their already established friend set, they had room for others, I'm sort of persuaded it would change our church. It'd be different. Let me use this word. What if we all became hospitable? There's, there's the word. What if we all became hospitable? Let me give you a definition of hospitality. Um, the friending and generous reception and entertainment of guests, visitors, and strangers. Okay? Welcoming people into our heart and to our home. This one and maybe yours. Let me read a few verses from 1 Peter chapter 4. You want to turn there, you can. And I promise I'll land this quickly. I want you to listen to this. This is some admonition from Peter. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity and or love shall cover a multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. So you put that together, and here's what I kind of take away. Um, Hospitality can cover a host of flaws. Right? Okay, you all grasping this? Eastland's not perfect. Get it. I'm not perfect. Um, Programming not perfect. Someone come in here and maybe not like that song. Um, Something I said, a little off-putting. There's just something about the nursery, it's off. But here's the deal. Love covers a multitude of sins. And if we, if people are received when they come in, maybe Friendship should never trump doctrine, but within certain parameters, I want to tell you this, if people walk in these doors and get a hospitable response, it'll cover a host of flaws that we can never make go away because we're here. People can love Eastland a whole lot more if we love people a whole lot more, is the idea. Hebrews 13, 2 says, be not forgetful to entertain strangers. The word means hospitality. Romans 12, 13, distributing to the necessity of the saints and given to hospitality. 1 Timothy 5, 10 tells us that, you know, widows who have demonstrated hospitality should be taken care of by the church. That's the, that was the qualification for being taken care of by the church. Was that widow hospitable? 1 Timothy 3, and this is about anyone who desires office in the church, well, they must be given to hospitality. It goes back to the, to the uh, Old Testament. Uh, the Jewish people would be welcoming to strangers. Leviticus 19.34. Matthew 25.34-36 tells us that when we're nice to anybody, it's a form of hospitality. And when we're nice to them, we're nice to the Lord. 
Titus 1.8, 3 John 1.5-8, all these texts talks about the importance of hospitality. I want you to think about the hospitality of Jesus and the way that He received people. And then I want you to think about the, some people who are hospitable to, to Jesus, thinking Mara, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Who were Jesus' greatest earthly friends, most likely? That trio. And why? Because they welcomed Him into their heart and also where? Into their home. And he loved them. Man, what a legacy. If you've been paying attention all through the back book of Acts, what's been happening here to make Paul's missionary journeys possible? Different people hosted him. They were hospitable. Um... Jesus received people with open arms, so should we. It's really hard to be a good Christian in isolation. No matter your morals, your ethics, and your standards. Consider, Christian homes whose carpets bear no stains and spills from guests are homes that are properly being poorly stewarded. If all our time belongs to us and none of it's imparted to others, we are probably not being very efficient at redeeming the time. And all these sayings open hearts and open homes may be required. You want to be a really good Christian? Well, here's another way of looking at it. Be nice to people, especially new people. Make them feel welcome. Eastland could be intimidating to new people. Open yourself up a little bit. Make a new friend. The time and hospitality of Priscilla and Aquila given to Apollos changed the Macedonian nation because they hosted a man named Apollos who went there and persuaded Jews and Greeks everywhere. What if they had never hosted him? He, had never, he may have never been instructed the way. He, he may have never found encouragement. But what they did for him made an eternal difference. Same way for those who hosted Paul. I'm done. Our willingness to open up our lives to other people might bear eternal reward and fruit as well. So, something we all can work on. Let me ask you to stand.